Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see y'all, and I I really enjoy this opportunity every week. And if, if you're joining us online, I appreciate you tuning in. We've been going through the book of Romans, and last week, if you were here with us, we talked about the end of the second half of Romans 5. We talked about how Paul sets up this idea of how you have a pattern. You've got these two men. One is Adam and one is Jesus. And through the decision of one man, as our representative, all of us face the consequences of what Adam's choice was. That because Adam was our representative for humanity, what was true of him was true of us. That we make choices on our own behalf, and that leads to death and decay and what we call sin. But now a new representative has come, Paul says, and his name is Jesus Christ. And if you put your faith in him, then what's true of him is true of us. That the being seated at the right hand of God is true of us. That our sins are forgiven is true of us. Um, what's true of Christ is true of, of us. And, and in chapter 6, Paul continues that idea. And what I ended with last week was talking about how where there was sin, grace abounded. If you had this much sin, there was this much grace. And the challenge that Paul says, listen, there's nothing you can do. And he's going to say this more emphatically in Romans 8. But there is nothing you can do that can separate you from the love of Christ. You cannot out-sin God's grace. And where I left us last week was with this question that's a very natural question that people would have asked back then, and it's a question that people would ask today. Okay, Paul, you're telling me that Christ's grace, it abounds even more in the face of our sin. That there is no amount of sinning that can keep us from Christ's love. Doesn't that just encourage people to keep on doing what they're doing and just to keep on sinning? This is what I like to call the summer camp religion, which is where you live a terrible life, then you go to summer camp, you feel really terrible, and when they sing There's a Stirring, you get up and you go front and you cry a lot and you talk about how sad you are and how sorry you are and you say, I'm never going to do it again. I'm going to recommit my life to Christ. Give that about two weeks post-summer camp. You're right back at it. And then summer camp's coming again. Okay, I can't wait to get forgiven again. Uh, this idea of uh, there's no amount of, if, if, if God's just going to forgive us every time, what's that going to do to not encourage people just to keep on doing exactly what they're doing? And so that's where we have Romans 6. If you want to turn in your Bibles, I'll, I'll go along on the screen. Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may superabound, may increase? By no means. No way. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What's true of Jesus is true of us. Um, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. By the way, this is present tense. He's not saying when you die someday, you will be united in resurrection like him. He's saying right now, when you choose to die with him in baptism, right now you get to choose, you get to be a part of the kingdom resurrection life that's available. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. This is the second time we've seen some kind of word, and you can circle these. Anytime you see a word like slave or master, this is crucial. Paul, a lot of people think Paul is drawing from the imagery of the Israelites leaving Egypt. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt, and God, by his grace and his gift, has come and said, I'm going to free you from this. Did any of the Israelites do anything to deserve God's freedom? No. God, just like, like Paul's been saying this whole time, it was a free gift that God said, I want to come and free you from this out of slavery. And yet, what do the people of Israel do constantly in the wilderness? They constantly say, oh, it's so hot out here. We don't have anything to drink. We had it better in Egypt. Let's go back. And over and over, the idea is like, do you all not remember? You were slaves in Egypt. You want to go back to that? And this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, uh, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over you. The sin, or the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But, but life, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. That was your old master, like Egypt, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Some translations like to say things like, don't let sin reign in your arms and legs. Literally, like, don't let, don't let it have control of what you're going to do with your, your body. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, have left Egypt, we're now in a new life, we're no longer in slavery, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. This is gonna, he's going to bring this back in Romans 12. Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And I'm going to I hope, I, I, in my mind, this all is very smooth and flows together. I'm going to attempt to make my thoughts flow together. But the first piece that I want to lay down is I want you to remember this movie, if you've ever seen it. A lot of people consider this maybe one of the greatest movies ever made. And uh, if you haven't seen it, it's called Shawshank Redemption. Uh, these are the two main characters. You've got Andy Dufresne, and you've got Red. And uh, Andy Dufresne, uh, I, I don't know how much... This movie's been out forever, so I don't want to spoil it. Um, but uh, I, at the same time, you've, you've maybe seen it. But the premise is these two men are in jail. You don't necessarily know who's in prison for what and uh, if they actually did it or didn't. But the kind of the joke is that everyone who comes in is like, says, I'm innocent. I didn't do a thing. And everybody knows you probably did do something. Um, and there's this scene with a character named Brooks. Does anybody, if you've seen this movie, could you raise your hand for me? Okay, thank you. <laughs> If I got through this whole story and like 100 people came up to me after church and was like, I've never heard of that movie, this would not work at all. Um, but there's a scene where Brooks, really sweet old man, is, is uh, holding another inmate at knife point. And they're like, what's gotten into Brooks? What's wrong with Brooks? And they say, well, Brooks got his release. He's been released from prison. And he's thinking about killing this other inmate, you know, a little bit in his head because he can't, he can't imagine leaving prison. He, he doesn't want to leave. And it's a tragic story. What happens is he gets out, and, and if you've seen the movie, you know the rest of the story. But it's not a good ending. Let's just say he writes, Brooks was here uh, on the wall. 
And there's this great line that Red says. He says, uh, Brooks, Brooks was, he's 73 years old, so pretty young. And he, uh, you like that? Um, uh, so he, he's, he's been in there for 50 years when he gets released. His 50 years are up. And so when he went into prison, he was a 23-year-old. He's lived 53 more, or 50 years of his life in jail. And uh, what Red says, he has a line where he says, These walls are funny. First you hate them. Then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. If any of you don't know that phrase, the idea of being institutionalized in prison is this idea that you get so used to prison that that's comfortable for you. And this is what Paul is talking about here in Romans. He's saying, listen, some of you have become institutionalized to sin. You've spent so much of your life. By the way, for some of you, this probably isn't that applicable because some of you, you have grown up in the church. And what Paul would say is when you choose to have faith in Christ and be baptized with him, sin no longer has mastery over you. But for all the people reading this letter, for all the people who don't have that faith in Christ, what Paul would tell you is both Christians and non-Christians sin, but one of you has a master called sin, and one of you has a master called Jesus Christ. But even for those of us who have grown up in the church, we, if we're not careful, will become people like Brooks, where we have gotten so comfortable with our sins, with our problems. Now, maybe not the major ones, but, you know, gossip, you know, maybe not the major ones, but maybe a little too much pride, maybe a little too much arrogance, maybe my anger, maybe my self-centeredness. We've become so comfortable with them that we, whenever Christ comes and says, don't, when Paul says, don't live in that anymore, get out of that slavery, get out of that prison, that's not your master anymore, we think, oh, sure, of course, let's do that. And yet, throughout our lives, we demonstrate that it's hard for us to let go. It's hard for us not to think this is who we are, this is where we were, and I just can't change this to the point even where, like for Brooks in the story, he can't see a future forward without the walls. And some of us uh, maybe uh, can relate to that a little bit. I have one point to this sermon, so my preaching mentor would be happy. He says, no, there's no good sermon that's a three-point sermon. Every sermon needs to be a one-point sermon and stick to it. And here's my one point. So if you like to take notes, here's the one point. Paul is trying to say, don't go back into the slavery of sin. Go forward into the resurrection. One of the uh, people that I read for this week had an interesting analogy. I think it, it's, it's a pretty good analogy. But he, he said, imagine if you've gotten a landlord that you live with that is cruel, that is always asking you to pay in advance, that's always threatening you, that he'll hurt you if you do certain things or, or always coming into your house, barging in in the middle of dinner and eating your food and, and saying, like, what's in your fridge and taking food out of it? That'd be a pretty bad landlord, right? And imagine your lease comes to an end and you've paid in full. You've, everything you've paid is, is right. And then you move into a new place and imagine that, that landlord comes into your new place, your new home, and you immediately have kind of a PTSD of, okay, okay, I'll do what you want, I'll do what you want. Paul is saying, listen, that was your old master. You've moved out. Don't let that master bully you around anymore. Live life differently. Um, Don't go back into that slavery. Go forward into this new life that Christ has for you. All right, analogy number two. Like I said, this makes sense in my mind. Hopefully it makes sense in your mind. I want you to imagine a wedding, a wedding ceremony, and you've got these two people, a man and a wife, and they've done a great job of pursuing each other while they've been dating. Whenever it's been, they've been dating for a month, he buys her a flower. Whenever uh, 
he wakes up or and leaves his job, she's left like an, uh, you know, I don't know, some a dessert, a, a cake, on the top of his car, and it's a, and and they're they're pursuing each other, right? You get to the wedding, and. They make vows to each other. They say, in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, for better or for worse, that I'll stick with you. And then imagine that after that, the wife starts, it just continues to be incredibly selfless to him. She's doing everything she can to love him however best she can. If that means he would really like the laundry to be done, she does it as well as she can. If that means that he'd really like to have all the food ready from when he comes home for work, she does all of that for him. Whenever, uh, whenever he wants to, like, hey, let's, I'd really like to have a chance to just go watch some football on the TV and just not be bothered. She comes in, she sets a plate beside him with some chips and a drink or whatever, okay? Now let's imagine the guy puts zero effort into the marriage. Every day he gets up, does whatever he wants to do, goes to work, comes back, doesn't ever say I love you, doesn't ever say anything like, uh, hey, you look really nice today, or doesn't say anything remotely um, like caring or ever think outside the box. By the way, if any of you are sweating a little bit, when I was thinking of this analogy, I was sweating a little bit because I can be pretty guilty of this. Okay, I'm describing this life, right? Now I want you to go back to when the vows were made. And I want you to imagine that the groom says to the preacher, now, remind me, like, whenever we get married and we make vows to each other, that's kind of, that's kind of it, right? Like, we're, we're in this for the long haul, right? There's no kind of backing out. And uh, I say, uh, the, the preacher says, yeah, that's right. And he says, so you're telling me, like, I've put all this work in to, to get this girl to love me, but now I technically, I kind of don't have to do any more, right? Like, because we're kind of locked into this deal, right? Okay, are any of you starting to think, like, this is a kind of a sad story, right? What I believe is, if you hear Paul saying this story, or Paul saying all this about grace, about God's gift to you, and you hear it, and if your first thought is, so Paul, are you telling me I get all this free grace, and I don't have to really do anything, like I can just keep on sinning, you are like the husband in that story. You're the husband who says, you're telling me that like, I get this, all this great stuff, and I really don't have to do anything? And Paul would say, by no means. You've missed the whole stinking point. If you think that what this church and Christianity and grace is all about is the fact that God did all this and we're just, we just get this grace, that is true. That is great news. But if that doesn't inspire you to want to give your life to Him, then you've missed the point. If you, as a, anyone out there, most of you are married, some of you are not married yet, I challenge you that if you think that it's all about pursuit and then getting married and then it's all about you doing whatever the heck you want and expecting your spouse to worship you and serve you, you've missed the point of marriage. Okay? And I think that the reason this analogy sticks out so clearly to me is that in the same way that any, that guy who does that in the marriage, okay, let's go back to this, this guy who, who made this comment. Is he any less married? Nope. He's just as married. Has he lived a marriage? No. The same is true for us in our salvation. We are a, a church, and, and churches do this all over. We get so caught up in, what must I do to go to heaven? That as long as we've got that, we're good. And guess what? If, you, if any one of you, 
Anyone watching online wants to come and profess your faith in Christ and wants to take on life in the waters of baptism, and then you want to do nothing for Jesus the rest of your life, you are just as saved by grace. But have you lived and enjoyed the marriage? Not at all. And what Jesus would say is, is for all of us who get so worried about the salvation and the, mar- the am I still technically married? Jesus and Paul would say, what are you asking about? That's not even the point. The point is the marriage. The point is the unity of how much you desperately want to be with God, a God who desperately wants to be with you. Diedrich Bonhoeffer is a theologian that I've quoted before, and I've mentioned, and he has this phrase that I would say is a very popular phrase called cheap grace. He talks about cheap grace where the idea is, of course you've sinned, and and now everything is given, so you can stay just the way you are, because technically, you know, Jesus, he didn't, you didn't have to become right with God in order to be saved. You just had to have faith in Christ. So now, so now you're good to go. And he calls this cheap grace. This is from Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living incarnate. I don't want you to hear me say all that and to say, okay, Drew, I get grace, but now I really need to work for it. That would still be missing the point. That would be substituting a new law. That would be like saying, you're married, but if you don't stay a really good husband, she's going to walk out the door. Okay, does that make sense? That's the new, that would be a new problem, switch, switching out an old problem for a new problem. But instead, here's a, here's a quote from Dallas Willard. He says, It is now understood to be part of the good news, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that one does not have to be a life student of Jesus in order to be a Christian and receive forgiveness of sins. So wait, I, I, I'm kind of interested in this Jesus thing. What all does it entail? Nothing, buddy. Just get in that water and you're good to go. You know, we'll just add another point on our number of communions this, or number of baptisms this year. Yeah, you're great. You're solid. Just get in that water. This gives precise meaning to the phrase cheap grace, though... It would, better, it would be better described as costly faithlessness. I don't think Willard is saying that if you live that life where you, you come to know Christ and you don't become a life student of Him, I don't think Willard would say you are no longer saved. You are still just as married, but you've missed out on the marriage, and it is a costly faithlessness. We've gotten to the point where being a Christian is about people asking what the bare minimum is, when all along it's an invitation to so much more, not a new set of rules to earn your grace, but an invitation to come and to die. Bonhoeffer has this quote that's another one you've heard before. It's my, this will be my last quote to read, but it's, a, it's another classic Bonhoeffer quote. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death, We give over our lives to death. This is what we read in Romans 6. Pause, don't keep reading the quote. When we embark in discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with, with His death. 
What is true of Christ is true of us. Christ died, we die. Christ will rise, we will rise. That's exactly what he's saying in Romans 6. For if you have been united with him in a death like his, you will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We give over our... I'll go back to the quote. Thus it begins... The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The promise of Romans 6 is that we have a new life that will begin on the other side of death. And it's not one that just begins when our bodies die. It's one that can begin as soon as you decide to give your life to Christ. It's one that can begin today. Whenever Christ bids us to come and die, He doesn't mean come and die and have a really boring, terrible life the rest of your life, but it'll be worth it when you get raised someday. When He bids us to come and die, He says, I want you to surrender that life that you've become institutionalized to. Surrender that life that you can't really imagine what life would be like without it to the point where you're like Brooks in Shawshank Redemption. Surrender that life, get out of that old life, die to that, and be born again into a new life, a life of grace and freedom. And that doesn't mean you just get to go on sinning and, oh, this is great. What a great deal. No, it means if, if you're thinking that, you've missed it all. It's all about this new life of, of the, what Christ has to offer you. And this is what I would say whenever I applied for this job and every preaching and youth ministry job I've ever applied for. The number one thing they ask is, like, what are, why did you want to become a minister? What is it that makes you want? And, and one thing I'll admit, I am not the most mission-minded minister in the world. I know lots of ministers where they are like crazy on fire for going and finding someone who doesn't know Jesus and helping them know Christ. I care about that, but that's not the thing that gets me out of bed. I know some preachers that the thing that gets them out of bed is preaching, is getting to be up here and loving to speak and create a message. I really like that. That's not necessarily the thing that gets me out of bed. The thing that I would say I am most passionate about by far in ministry is to see two kinds of people to see people who are trapped in a life of slavery, thinking that there is no other option, and to say, guess what? You really have another option. And this other option of resurrection is a great other option. And, this is more often my clientele, the people who have grown up in church, who have grown up knowing Christ, but are still under a control of, well, you know, I, I do the right things and I'm, I'm in the marriage, but they don't realize that they're not enjoying being married. I've, I've really let that analogy use a lot of lifting this morning. But do you get what I'm saying? We know so many people, so many people who we've been raised and we've been taught, I just got to make sure we stay married, which means I got to come to church enough, which means I've got to do this right and I've got to know these things right and I've got to come to Bible class at least a decent amount of time. I've got to make sure, right? That's not, that's staying married. But Christ has called us to so much more. He's call, called us to come and to enjoy a life with Him. A life that's going to be dangerous and scary and we're going to have to put our trust in some stuff besides money and power. We're going to have to put ourselves out there. I love to see people become free. To have their eyes opened to the life that Christ would really want for you. And what I'd like you to do before we finish is I'd like you to stop and think. And I'd like you to think, when was the last time I felt like I really had to put myself out there for my relationship with Christ? When was the last time that I did something in my life that common sense would have told me not to do? There are people all over the world, there are people right now in Russia who are, say they believe in Jesus Christ, 
who right now are at a real difficult spot because their faith in Christ tells them, I need to be a person of peace and I need to stand up for this. And common sense says, shut your mouth, don't get killed. Don't get fired, don't get, right? They are at a crossroads. And guess what? The good news is, is if they keep their mouth shut and they keep doing their thing, they will stay married. They will stay saved. They will stay redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and His free grace. I firmly believe that. Because guess what? There are plenty of times where I've made the same, where I've been faced with the same question and I've been a, I remember in ACU one time a teacher asking us, if you were around during the, uh, the slave trade and, and, and the uh, uh, underground railroad and a slave came to your house, would you have hid them? And I said point blank, I said probably not because I probably would have been from Texas and I probably would have been raised that they are worthless and that they're property and I would have called the dogs on them. But I hope that my faith in Christ would have made me stop and think for a second, here's a real moment. And guess what? If I had made that mistake, I would have been just as saved. I would have been just as forgiven. I would have had just as much grace, but I would have missed out on a chance to truly put myself to say, I'm going to die with Christ because I know that when I'm raised with him, whether it's in this life or next life, it's going to be worth it. And it's going to be a real marriage. If any of you would like to know more about what it means to join in, not just to be saved, but to really live out a marriage. I'd love to talk to you. It's what I'm most passionate about. If any of you have thought of anything where in the midst of this, you're like, I actually think I am maybe just coasting with this and just enjoying the cheap grace. I'd encourage you not to, not to think, oh man, I'm in trouble, but to think, how much am I missing out? How much is the man in that first analogy that I used? This, this wife did everything for him. How much better could his life have been if he had reciprocated that even half? He would have had a really wonderful marriage and a wonderful life, but he missed out on it. I'd encourage you, if you have any prayer requests, elders will be in a standing at the doors while we stand and we sing this song.